Tom Bernard Show with L.A. Nick. Andy Brand Bernard. Cassie Schrader. Catherine should be in later. We'll be right back. I'm going to have my first cup of Keurig coffee in my life because Catherine just bought a new machine and Andy just set it up, so I'm going to have a cup of coffee at some point. I'll tell you how that went. And also, 25 dying professions you should avoid. We'll go with the top 10 professions that you should avoid and why. Right of this, Tom Bernard Show. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Walzer Automotive continues to grow. They think it's because of their upfront pricing, no haggle or hassle sales experience, And working with one person from start to finish. I think we all know it's because of the loyal podcast listeners. I've said it a million times before. I won't endorse a company that I don't believe in, and Walzer's no exception. I've bought several cars from them, as has my family. I know what you're thinking. Tommy got some special deal. Well, the truth is we paid the Walzer best price just like everyone else. Walzer will sell about 35,000 cars this year, and you can't do that if your prices aren't great. Do yourself a favor. When it's time to shop for a new or used car, go to walzer.com and give them a shot. You won't be sorry. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, on a Wednesday. Hump day, as everybody calls it. Somebody just told me it was hump day in the hallway. Where, where did they get that term come from? Over the hump. Middle of the week. We're over the hump. I have a dirty mind, so. <laughs> yeah, what are you? It's time to stoop people. Now we're talking. I just love it. Is gentlemen. it a Geico commercial where the camel's walking through the office? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Guess what day it is? And yeah. everyone. Oh, but they don't run it anymore. Oh, that was a funny it one. It was a really good commercial. I got to tell you, their commercials are really good. And the best one of all time was the two owls. Who? Yeah. It was fantastic. <laughs> I'm having brunch tomorrow with Louise. Who? You know Louise. Who? I think their first. I think their first um, comedic commercial was: um, you see a car coming down the road, and a squirrel runs out in front of the. The car, the car oh, yeah. veers off, yep. and you don't see the car, but you can hear it crash. Yep. And then the two squirrel, he runs up to another squirrel, and they give each other a high five, and then they run off. <laughs> yep. yeah, this is their 50-year anniversary. Geico? Geico, 50. 50 years. I didn't know that. Yeah, 50-year anniversary. I had no clue, yep. like much of other things, too. 50 I years had no this clue. Year. I'm surprised they don't have a big campaign going on for their 50-year anniversary commercial. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. John Pugliano, or he, he might pronounce it Pugliano, which is not the Italian way to say it's Pugliano. Yeah, it's, they probably pronounce it the other way, though. Pugliano? Yeah. Yeah, Pugliano, Pugliano it probably Pugliano, is. Yeah. yeah. John Pugliano, author of The Robots Are Coming, A Human Survival Guide to Profiting in the Age of Automation, sees plenty of white-collar jobs that will be threatened by automation. Bottom line, any routine job that can easily be defined by a mathematical or logical equation will be at risk, Pugliano said. Opportunity will be there for those who can create new uh, new produces. 
They mean new products? Probably it says new, new produces services or solve, fix unexpected problems. So your accountant may not have a job in the future. But plastic surgeons and emergency room doctors should do well. And plumbers, Pugliano said, will always have work. Pugliano and other experts contacted by work. Well, nobody wants to work anymore anyway. So the, these professions <laughs> can all go away so you can all be it's homeless a, and live off the city. It's actually already happening. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It's already is. happening. The, Look. The, in fact, I, went, well, I just came back from Europe, and Benelli Shotgun is one of the biggest shotguns sold in America right now. Yeah. That factory is 100% human-free. Is it really? Yeah. Ooh, man. <laughs> Don't be out making guns, man. Don't be making any guns because it's not going to work out for you. I'm just telling you. Um, yeah, I, I look... I'm a big believer, obviously, in, in welfare for people who really need it. Basically, mothers who've been abandoned with their children uh, is a good example of that. But there are people with special problems that need it as well. Food stamps, welfare, all that stuff. i got no problem with that. But these people that are jacking the system so they don't have to work, you disgust me. When did it become okay to have welfare for life? I like, know, when, I when did that happen? Wasn't it a time where you got welfare when you were down your luck and you needed a little boost to yeah, get back on exactly your feet? Yeah, that's exactly what it was for. Yeah. But now there's or people who can't it's work for life. I know it's disgusting, and it's just to buy votes. They're taking our money and buying votes with it. That's all they're doing. Well, I I just came back and I was following that that homeless camp situation in, yeah, in Minneapolis, ridiculous. and now they're going to move it to Minnehaha next to a charter school. Oh, yeah, good. It's a charter school for Hispanics. If it was any other pe- if it was a charter school for white people, it wouldn't be going there. I, I guarantee think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about but that. But it's a charter school for Hispanic kids, So, and the, it's going there. That's where it's going to go. And they're spending up to $2.5 million to move, I think there's, how many tents are there now? It look like thousands. No, but there's, there's probably a hundred no. or something. It's like ninety, I think. Not ninety or hundred. Yeah. yeah. So they're going to spend two point five million dollars on ninety people. It's unbelievable. The whole thing is unbelievable. Uh, this this density again. I grew up in the poorest neighborhood in the entire state of Minnesota, by far. Down around Plymouth Avenue, back when I was a kid, was the poorest area in all the state of Minnesota. I never saw one homeless person when I was a kid. Never. There was I'm no ne- such thing. I never have either. There was no, no was such thing as homeless people when I was a kid. Oh, yes, there were. No, there were not. I would no. have seen them. I used to go down and play in the railroad yards all the time. You'd have seen plenty of them down the railroad yards. Even in yards. big cities, there were, you rarely saw one. I mean, in Philadelphia, I rarely saw one. Once in a while, you'd see like a hobo. Oh, but it says here that Geico's been around for 82 years. 82? 82. You're only off by 32 years. Well, they're advertising. <laughs> I just saw a billboard today. Well, what might be a new? It might Six, be a 50 new. 50 years saving money. Well, see, that could be a different. Go. That could be a different deal. Well, it used to be government employee insurance company. It did, yes. So exactly. maybe they mean for the general public. Yeah. Probably general public, fifty years. Yeah, that would make sense. I just saw billboard today. I said fifty years saving you money. That would. Uh, I think Geico stands for. Uh, That's what it stands for. Government I know government employee insurance company. Insurance company. That's pretty cool. All right, so here we go, ladies and gentlemen. So, yes, uh, look, I am not condemning anyone who needs welfare or food stamps. It does make me very angry when you buy hookers and drugs with your food stamps. I'm not real happy about that, that that's going on. Two two strip clubs in Ohio lost their liquor license because they were taking food stamps for lap dances. <laughs> I, think they should do, I think you should have drug testing to be able to get welfare. I agree completely. I, look, you're paying out all this dough. Look, there are people who need welfare. There's no doubt about it. They're, they do need it. My mother was on welfare for one month when I was a kid. Raising seven kids by herself, she was on welfare for one month. Oh, to get back mm-hmm. on her feet. And she got to get back on her feet, and she yeah. did, and she said, okay, we're done. That's the way it's supposed to be for. And uh, by the way, I had to go stand in line to get food stamps, and that is a little harder to do than just getting the card in the mail. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sitting there. It's just. Now it's become a way of life. Well, yeah, it's generational. Yeah, it's generational. Like these kids learned it, and now that's what they do. And people have more kids to get more welfare welfare money because the more. I thought they stopped that, no? No. They should. They still do it. That's terrible. Are you making me a cup of coffee, Andy? They base it. Uh, um, sure. well, what flavor? 
Do you want flavored or just normal coffee? I want flavored. What kind of flavor do we chocolate have? Chocolate chip cookie, vanilla bean, cinnamon twist. We got chocolate chip cookie. Pumpkin spice. <laughs> we got chocolate yes, chip we do. cookie. Where's that? I might try chocolate chip cookie. Do we have more than one? Well, we got those. We got a ton of them over here too. I don't think those are this. Yeah, we only have one. Okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we? Why don't you give me? Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but this is very important because I've never had. I've never had a cup of coffee from a Keurig, and I bought. Well, Catherine bought one yesterday and brought it in today. So why don't you give me the regular coffee, with the what do you have over there? Hazelnut cafe mocha. Oh, cafe mocha. That sounds wonderful. That was. Now we're talking. I'm very excited, ladies and gentlemen, because I literally have not. I started. Drinking coffee within the last year. I never drank coffee my whole life because I, I hated the flavor of it. But again, that was a crap out of a can that was just horrendous. Oh, instant coffee? I just started. No, fold, like Folgers in a can. Yeah. Oh, would, okay. Ugh, God, I just started horrible. drinking wine. Did you really just start? Yeah. I've never drank wine in my life. Why did you start drinking wine? Because in Pedro, Italy, they have the best. I've just, oh, somebody said, oh, you wine. have to try it. It's amazing wine. I tried it, and I was like, wow, this is really good. I always hated wine. There's a wine called Sasakaya. It's Ornelia, Sasakaya, and I can't remember the other one. There are three of them. But I only drink coffee when I'm here. You know why Sasakaya was, was uh, imported into America? Because of one person. And Sasakaya is very expensive. And it's everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but you can buy it in America. Sasakaya was first sent to America because John Gotti wanted it sent to America. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Is he still alive? No, he died in he prison died. a few years ago. And that I, is the Keurig. <laughs> that, that's the Keurig doing. Is it going to be that noisy all the time? Yeah. I think so. Well, that's pretty It's my heart monitor, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> The 50th anniversary. I think his son has a show out now. Or yeah, he does. Yeah, called, I think you're right. Uh, John Gotti Jr. Not My Father or something. Yeah, and then Victoria Gotti. She used to come on the KQ Morning Show a lot. but uh, And she was terrific. She was very, very pleasant. Except she did get mad at me one time, but not really mad. When her father was sentenced to life in prison, I said, could you send me a suit because he doesn't need him anymore. <laughs> she didn't think that was funny in the least. Like, I come think on. pretty funny. Well, pretty, first of all, his suits wouldn't have fit because he was not anywhere near as big as I am, I guess. They're probably very expensive suits. I would imagine they're rather spendy. It's true. So that's the deal. The other thing I want to mention before we move on with this robots are coming, a human uh, survival to profiting in the age of automation. Uh, Cassie brought this up yesterday on this show, and I did more research on it. Uh, Karl Marx, you shouldn't, uh, pro, private property should not exist. We shouldn't even allow private property. All property should be the people's property. I heard that. Okay. I heard that. You heard that segment? I did, yeah. He bought a private, a private grave site for himself. It was private property because he knew people couldn't just walk up and see his grave. They charge $6 now to see his grave site, which doesn't go to him. It goes to maintain it. But he still said all property should be the people's property, and all people should be able to use it, except for me. I should get private property. Of course. These fraud, these politicians and whatever they are, you're disgusting. Yep, it's getting worse and worse. Because welfare has gotten out of control, not because of the people. The people are taking advantage of it, but it got out of control because politicians started buying votes with our money. Disgusting. Oh, they still are. Oh, they are. there's no question they are. Yeah, that's it's not even close. We All got right. a guy in the chat who his daughter is a guard at Stillwater. Oh God, it scares me to death. Yeah, um, apparently, in addition to the guard who died from a heart attack, there were three other guards who went to the hospital because of the incident. Man, there you go. That, oh, that was at Stillwater. Though. The guy who died of a heart attack was over at Oak Park Heights. Oh, that's in Stillwater too. Though. Does he mean Stillwater Prison or in Stillwater, the city? He said the Stillwater Prison Guard, but I don't know. Well, there were, that guy got stabbed and hit with a hammer, hit in the head with a hammer. Well, so apparently whatever happened there also sent three other guards to the hospital, but they didn't report on that. And this guy, well, of course not, because we're understaffed. We need a lot more prison guards to keep our mm -hmm. prison guards safe. When are we going to understand that 99% of people in prison are psychotic? 
Not all of them. People are, for some reason, we're currently of the mind that it's impossible to be violently crazy. No, it's unbelievable. The only reason anyone would ever be violent is because they're being oppressed or something. Once again, a guard killed at Stillwater. Another guard died trying to save a second guard from being killed. He had a heart attack and died at Oak Park Heights. And they had to shut down Valley Fair a few hours or Was it two or three hours? What time, what time did you go pick up your daughter? Uh, about, well, she called me at about 10.30, and they were supposed to be open until uh, midnight. Yeah, so, so an hour and a, they had to close an hour and a half early because I would assume gangbangers are running around causing all kinds of problems at Valley Fair. If we keep telling people that we're all the same or we're all in this together, that is one of the great political lies of all time, yeah. and it started with Karl Marx, that psycho. You, you can't have private property. I can but you can't. Yeah, really. Like, come on, man. We are not all the same. We are not. Some of us are very, very violent, and if you give them an inch, they're going to kill about everybody they come in contact with, particularly, by the way, you. There was a guy yesterday walking down, around downtown Minneapolis screaming and punching people in the face. There you go. That's and, exactly and, what I'm talking about. And nobody did anything. I know. It's unbelievable. But nobody did anything. Because we don't have enough cops. The old bystander effect. Everybody just walked away <sighs> and ran away. It's unbelievable. And he punched a he punched a guy from India right in the face. Nice. And the guy just like just walked away really fast after he got punched, but he had to get hurt because this guy was pretty big. The guy's a big guy. Yeah. Great. Hmm. It's a dream come true right there. See, I probably just wouldn't punch strangers. me because I carry a gun, so I wouldn't punch me. I'll shoot your ass. Yeah, it's, I was pretty. Uh, it's terrible. Shocked. It's because these politicians make money by telling everybody that we're all in this together and we need more government funding for all the people. And it's not government funding, it's our money well, given to the you government. You know, the city of Minneapolis just got in the housing business. You know that? Right? I did know that. They it's bought, ridiculous. they bought, what's his name, sold all his old apartment buildings? Who? The, the guy who was a so called slumlord. And, oh, uh, that guy. Yeah, I know who you're talking they about. They were trying Frank to get him, somebody. Yeah, they Frank. were trying to get him out forever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. He's actually not a bad guy. I, I've been told by some people that I know very well said he's actually a pretty nice guy. They just wanted his places. They got them. They bought them all for fair market value, and oh, now God. they're in the housing business. With our money. Oh, 100%. Jesus. <laughs> Could you leave us alone? That would be so nice if you would just let us survive So now they're going to give that housing to people who it is unbelievable. want it but don't necessarily need it. Don't have housing. Maybe Catherine and I will just abandon our house and go live in a tent. <laughs> well, they say that the, a, the per, average person on, well, on full welfare is making $16 an hour for a 40-hour week. That's what I understand. That's exactly what I've heard. And again, it's a situation where, well, I don't want any stress in my life. I will tell you something. My entire life being in the radio business or the record business, I had to produce on a weekly basis in the ratings or selling records or whatever. I have had to produce since I was 18 years old, and I've been under a lot of pressure to get great ratings my whole life. Most people couldn't even think of doing that. No. Because they, oh, I don't want any stress on me. You know, like there are a lot of jobs that are very stressful. I'm not obviously being a prison guard is a hell of a lot more stressful than being on the radio. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about if you have to show results of your work every week. It's not like there's a job shortage right now. No, there's at not. All. In fact, I just talked to somebody at one of the technical colleges today. They have a 99% job placement rate <sighs> for two years. For a two-year degree. Which is 99% job placement that's rate. Great. Well, yeah, when people bring up the unemployment rate, that's not including people who don't want to work. That's only people who are actively looking for a job. Right. I mean, there's a lot no, of jobs right now. you're right. But I talked to somebody yesterday who is a uh, – he was an ex-Marine, and he has his own business, and he tried to hire some people from the inner city, and – he said most of them don't even show up the first day of work. No, they don't. They get the job. They, oh, God, we got to take a break here. We'll be right back. L.A. Nick's back, and we'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here with the founder and CEO of North American Banking Company, Michael Bilski. He was here to talk about a great service at an app that you can get and use from North American Banking Company. It's called XCheck. All right, Michael, my buddy, my pal of mine, why do I need this, and why is it cool? We developed the app to compete with the other payment applications across the country. We wanted something that was safe, 
secure, easy to use, and most of all, free. Say, for example, Alex needs some money and you want to send her some money, you can do it right away in the payment app and would get into her account without her having to go to the bank. Most convenient for the princess in your life. And the Prince Andy, too, because I wouldn't want the kids having to leave the house to get cash. I wouldn't want that. No, there'd be no sense in that. You'd have to buy the gas then, too. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to love it. This is Tom Why Not Bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Check out nabankco.com slash kq for more about XCheck. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Did you know that about 60% of people over the age of 60 are starting to experience cloudy, blurry, or dim vision due to cataracts? Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Eye Care. Whiting Clinic is best known for their fabulous LASIK results. You've heard me rave about them for years, but did you know they're also experts in cataract surgery? Yes, indeed, and I'm here to tell you about my wonderful experience having cataract surgery at Whiting Clinic. I'm at that age when my vision started to fade, so I called up the folks at Whiting Clinic. They helped me out right away. My cataract surgery was super easy, and thanks to the Whiting Clinic, my vision is top-notch once again. Whiting Clinic has the most advanced lens technology options, so I can see far away and up close without wearing any glasses. If you want to learn more about your options for cataract surgery or clearer vision, attend one of Whiting Clinic's cataract seminars. Call Whiting Clinic at 855-554-2020 to RSVP today. That's 855-554-2020 to learn more about your cataract surgery options at Whiting Clinic. Cheerios. I like it. Chocolate Chocolate peanut butter Cheerios. Mm, Really? Yeah. That's the worst part about being on a diet. Oh, many times. It's like, I can't eat any of that. No, it's true. But one day. Hair supply. (laughs) Oh, God, here we go. I'm all out of love. (laughs) The worst. Now we're talking. Yeah, talking. <laughs> Look, I, let me be very clear because I, I, you know, people assume things. Uh, I'm not saying my job is more stressful than being a cop, a firefighter, an EMT, any of this. That's not what I'm saying at all. A nurse, a doctor. I'm just saying when you have to produce numbers on a weekly basis, it puts a lot of stress on you. Mm-hmm. Whether you should be stressed out about it or not. I mean, even back in the days when we had a 30 share. It still stressed me out because, like, well, now you got to get a 31 share. Mm-hmm. It's just how it is. Well, it's it's like never, that, never good enough. No, it's never good enough. <laughs> it's like that line in Ghostbusters in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. where they got axed from the college, and, and Dan Aykroyd's character is like, well, now we got to work in the private sector, and they expect results. <laughs> yeah, they expect results. I can't, I can't be doing that. All right, so there are 25 jobs, uh, professions, I should say, that you shouldn't get into. Uh, this one seems very obvious to me. Travel agent. I think that's done. That one, yeah. That's been People done for a there. long time, hasn't Everybody's it? Everybody's their own travel agent yeah, now. They can do it all online through. I just heard somebody numerous. recently say, I got to call my travel agent. I went, what? I know. <laughs> or do you still have AOL? I loved having a travel agent back in the day, but you don't need one any longer. Catherine's my travel agent. That's <laughs> <it is now. laughs> People that have travel agents still use AOL. God, I was telling a story about Catherine. I was telling, you guys know who Diedrich Bader is, the guy yeah. on the American Housewife? Yeah. Love Diedrich Bader. He's talking about, you know, Katie and and uh, and, and uh, his, Katie and his character and the fact that they, you know, stress each other out and the rest of it. Swear to God, a couple of days ago, I was busier than hell. I got a million things to do. And so I walk up after the show, and she goes... Hey, do you want to go out and grab some dinner out tonight? And I said, Nah, I don't think so. She goes, Why are you so crabby? Crabby? I just said, No, I was going to say, No, I can't. But I didn't, I got, I got, Nah. And she went, Why are you so crabby? I was like, That's not crabby. Pipe down, sister. Mortgage broker. Don't why uh, don't we need any mortgage brokers anymore? Many of the skills possessed by folks who might be attracted to the profession could be utilized everywhere in the financial uh, services industry, elsewhere. Uh, they're saying, yeah, mortgage brokers will be doing other things. Many of the numeric and financial skills possessed by folks who might be attracted to that profession could be utilized. So by earning different professional credentials, those folks will not starve. So they'll be, they'll be good. That's good. Uh, bookkeeper. Yeah, bookkeepers. Hmm. Artificial intelligence takes care of that now. Uh, a lawyer. How about that yeah, action? Lawyers Lawyer. are very hard to find a job right now. Michael Bryant, you're out. That's Every, all I'm saying. Everybody that I know who went to law school in the last couple of years and graduated cannot find a job. As a lawyer, really? No, nope, they cannot mm. find a job. Well, the reason they say here is, and let's see, I'm going to see if you agree with this, if, that, if this is the reason. A lot of the work they do or used to do is quickly being taken over by technology. 
But how would technology represent you in court? Well, not court. Criminal lawyers. Criminal lawyers. Well, still, they still can't find a job, but there is a lot, a lot of stuff you can do online yourself now, like LegalZoom.com, mm-hmm. LegalZoom has oh, a lot of services. Suppose, yeah, well, yeah, before the it's Internet, right. it was, you know, basically you had to be at least somewhat familiar with pretty much every uh, major precedent. And um, now you can just Google it and the law, but yeah, now you can just <laughs> like yeah, now you can you just Google, it. Google through you know, however many and hundreds of law books you want and say, just put in the <clears throat> basics of what your case is, and it'll give you all the precedents, it'll give you all the laws, all the arguments. And then you have lawyers that just that just were specialized in trademarks, that's gone because you can just trademark anything yeah, that's online. True. That's uh, true. Uh, a lot of things like that, patent attorneys, yeah, you can just patent something online now, so a lot of them attorneys. Are just disappearing. I love this because the number one job to avoid in the future, broadcasters. Wow. Yeah, baby. <laughs> more and more listeners prefer streaming over their local drive time disc jockey. Well, that's, I suppose, if you, only if you work at a, uh, at a music station. One in ten. Uh, now, this is, this is a coincidence, and I'll be very honest with people because I've never really, I've talked about it a little bit but never announced it. Uh, one in ten of the nation's 33,202 radio and television announcers are expected to see their jobs disappear by 2026. Only, really, only, only yeah. about 3,300? 10% in eight years? That's really not bad. I will tell you this. The reason that's interesting to me, see their jobs disappear by 2026, I planned on retiring on April 17th, 2026. Mm. <laughs> so it's good news. It might be better news for me to stay in the business, though. Yeah, you'll be the only one left. Because I'll be the only one left. If you, if you can talk <laughs> on the radio. The end. Hey, what are they going to do? Shut down all those radio stations and take their licenses? And fo- I mean, what are they going to do? Right? Most of them are bankrupt. No, a lot of them are bankrupt. That's very, very true. Like a good percentage. Uh, consolidation in the industry as well as increased use of syndicated content is fueled. That's probably what I'll, well, matter of fact, this show is already syndicated around the market. And it'll probably be, I'm, I mean, around the state. And it'll probably be a lot bigger within the next couple of years. I'm going to work with uh, some owners on using this, uh, this show as content for their FMs around the five-state area and probably beyond that. Because that's where the future is, is syndicated content. Now, you can do a local morning show or a local afternoon show or something like that. Local is good. That's the thing about it with, with podcasting. But this is a pretty local podcast anyway. Mm, I don't know. I think you hit on a lot of national subjects. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of national subjects. But see, Definitely that's good for me. national guest. If this, yeah, absolutely. If this job disappears, this KQRS job disappears by 2026, it's when I planned on leaving anyway. But if it doesn't, I might stay longer. Because if you can make dough doing stuff, there's nobody. Well, right now, I will tell you, there's nobody coming up from behind anymore. No. There are no young people getting into radio anymore. Well, they, they won't let them anyway. Even if there was That's somebody true. with yeah. talent, they wouldn't let them do it anyway. No, not anymore. <laughs> it would be uh, that deal. Party DJs, however, are seeing an uptick in their business with demand for their services projected to grow about 6% by 2026. And they earn about the same $32,000 as their on-air counterparts. Thirty-two grand. Where the hell are you working? <laughs> How do you live on that? How do you live on that? I, they might, oh, so they're just talking about the radio stations around the country, I guess. I, I don't know, but yeah, broadcasting—it's great. Uh, yeah, casino cashier—that's a tough road to hoe, man. That's all going to be automated in the future, so there will be no casino cashiers. Um, IT guys—that's interesting. The IT professionals who patrol your office are becoming less and less relevant in today's workforce. Surprised at that one. I am too, because that job just came on online about what twenty years ago. Yeah, it's not that old. Financial planners, tasks once performed by low-level retail financial planners, are quickly being outsourced. It'll all be outsourced. I never trusted them anyway. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> that's point. Well, you know, I talk about it all the time. Uh, 90%, I would say, of people that I have trusted to do that have stolen money from Well, me. I always said if, it's I, true. if I'm going to have a, take a chance on losing my money, there's only one person I want to be able to blame. That'd be you. That's myself. Yeah, well, Catherine blames me whenever somebody Because if somebody, somebody else me. and they lose all my money, I'm going to have a problem with that. And you know what's really, uh, really upsetting about that is that you have financial planners, they steal money from you, significant amounts of money. Well, look at uh, Kevin Garnett. $77 million they stole from him. There's a lot of stories. But here's what I really like about it. The U.S. Attorney's Office and the white-collar guys, his name is Tim Rank, 
has no interest in, in talking to me. None. It's like, oh, so the money they stole from me is not the same as the money they stole from that golf course you jumped on immediately? Like the town and country, a woman stole like a million and a half, something like that. They jumped on that immediately. But me, forget it. Not, not happening. They don't like you. I know. It's like, because you don't like me, you don't do your job, you lazy bastard. Yeah, you heard me. That's exactly. Pick and choose place, right? I know it's ridiculous. Oh, it's, Minnesota has become totally pick and choose who they will serve. Double and who standards they here, all the way. It's, it's terrible. We have Richard on the phone. Oh, good, because I want to talk to Richard. Yes, Richard, how are you, sir? Okay, um, is this okay? Or should I, 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 no, should I turn sound, off the speakerphone? No, you sound great. Actually, okay. I think you sound ter- well. You know, you sound terrific anyway, whether it's on the phone or not, Richard. Let's be <laughs> honest. You know what I'm saying. Um, I love this book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard, I will tell you up front, I'm so happy to have you on because I've talked about the fact that I grew up in North Minneapolis. Where, where are you from originally, Richard? New York. New York. Queens. Okay. okay. Out in City. Out Manhattan. Yes, sir. Okay, so here's the deal, Richard. When I was a little kid, I grew up in North Minneapolis. North Minneapolis was where they put all the Catholics, the blacks, and the Jews back when I was a kid. This is a true story. This is, you know, a long time ago. And what they did then is once they put us all in in one neighborhood, they surrounded the neighborhood with freeways so we couldn't get out. True. <laughs> it it, was, it oh, is true. It God. is true. It's unbelievable, Richard. I know exactly what you're talking about and what you're writing about. So I just wanted to throw that in. Now I'll shut up and I want to hear exactly what drove you to write The Color of Law. Well, what drove me to write the book was I was a policy analyst in the field of education. I realized we couldn't solve our school problems so long as schools are segregated. And then I realized that the schools are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. Uh, We have uh, more segregation today than any time in the last 45 years. And so unless we do something about neighborhood segregation... We can't do anything about the biggest problems we face in schools. And mm-hmm. it turns out that mm-hmm. one of the reasons we do anything about neighborhood segregation is we've adopted a national myth, all of us, uh, that it all happened by accident. Yeah. Private prejudice, bank lend, and real estate agents wouldn't show homes to blacks in white neighborhoods or white families wouldn't sell to them or people just like to live with each other in the same, of the same race. But it's a myth. Uh, the reality is that every metropolitan area in this country, Minneapolis and New York and every other one, is racially segregated as a result of explicit racial policy on the part of the federal, state, and local governments designed explicitly, not the unintended consequence of benign policies, but explicitly designed to make sure that Africans and Americans and whites could not live near one another. Well, except unless, unless you were, we understand. Yeah. Unless you were Jewish or Catholic, then here you could do that because after Berlin fell, World War II, Minneapolis was the most anti-Semitic city in the world. That's a fact. And it's it's, yeah. it's well, it's true that other other minorities uh, at the time, minorities now they're considered part of the majority, also faced that kind of discrimination, but it wasn't nearly as intense as what no. was experienced by African. Well, yeah, it, when when. Uh, Town was built, for example, which was the the symbol of suburbanization in the country. The Federal Housing Administration prohibited Levitt, the builder, from selling homes to African Americans, but they were Jews and Italians as well. So it's true that they they suffered discrimination. There's no question about it. Uh, But um, nothing compared to what the the federal government did to African Americans. And why did they do it, Richard? And uh, when are we talking about, first of all? Are we talking about in the 40s and 50s? Well, it started in the 30s. 30s, uh, It okay. started with uh, public housing, which at the time uh, was the first civilian public housing ever in this country. It was built in the New Deal, and it created projects. These were all for working-class families. They paid the full cost of public housing and their rent. The poor people weren't allowed in public housing when it started, and uh, the government uh, built uh, segregated projects, separate projects for whites and blacks. Uh, in cities all over the country, the North, the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic states, uh, not just the South. Uh, you know, I tell the story in my book about the Langston Hughes, the great African-American sure. poet who grew up in Cleveland. He grew up in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood. There was lots of integrated neighborhoods in the country at that time because people had to be able to walk to work. They didn't mm-hmm. have cars. And uh, the 
the factory districts employed all kinds of people, so they had to live in the same neighborhoods. Well, Langston Hughes says he grew up in the central neighborhood of Cleveland. He says in high school he dated a Jewish girl. He, his best friend was Polish. In the 1930s, the Public Works Administration came into that neighborhood, demolished integrated housing, and built two separate projects, one for blacks and one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation in Cleveland that otherwise might never have developed. And this happened all over the country. And then uh, you know, in World War II, it happened. Cambridge, Massachusetts, who considered a, um, a liberal place, uh, the Central Square neighborhood between Harvard and MIT was also an integrated neighborhood mm -hmm. where the federal government came in and built separate projects of creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. And so then on top of that, you got these uh, suburbs, like I mentioned a minute ago, Levittown, uh, east of New York City, which uh, could never have been built if uh, the Levitt had not gone to the Federal Housing Administration and gotten a, a guarantee of his bank loans. Uh, no bank was going to lend him money to build 17,000 homes without that federal guarantee. Right. And the federal government required him to promise never to sell homes to an African-American. even required him here and in other um, suburbs like this, there were hundreds of them around the country, uh, required them to put clauses in the deeds of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or or um, uh, rental to African-Americans. That is so these amazing. These federal policies, segregation that otherwise would never have existed. Um, Richard, I have to take like a two-minute break, and I'd like to come back and, and, and cover a lot of these different topics, because this is fascinating. To, I mean, really fascinating. Uh, we'll be right back, Tom Bernard Show. John, I just got another complaint about our delivery service. Oh, not again. Yep, we have to do something about our courier service. You know, they're a reflection of us. What happened now? Well, you know that one driver that has the dog that rides with him? Uh-huh. Well, when he got out of his truck to deliver our package, his dog got out and delivered, well, uh, his own package, if you know what I mean. That's it. I want you to call... Priority Courier Experts, because, you know, they've got more than 500 drivers. And tell them we need... A professional, reliable courier service. And make sure they have internet order entry and real-time tracking you know i had priority courier experts account rep in here about a month ago and who knows how many accounts we could have serviced better if we had just signed up and started using the twin cities largest most reliable on-call courier service what's that number because the next package is going with priority courier experts already dialing 651-748-4477 priority courier experts can we help you can you ever priority courier experts every time you call us we deliver it's come to my attention that you might not understand what the Gold Star Ride Foundation does. I'm the executive director of the organization, and I'll do my best to clear that up. First, I'd never complain about a $4 cup of coffee, but I am moved to tears when someone gives their last $20 for a cause they believe in. The Gold Star Ride Foundation doesn't just ride around the country. That's just a tiny bit of our work. What we really do is tell Sally at that coffee shop that someone died for her freedom. And we tell Dom and Logan, two boys who are growing up without a father, that we're going to make sure they get a good education. And we tell Viola that even though her oldest son died 51 years ago, there's at least one organization that has not forgotten that sacrifice. Every Gold Star family is different, but each one needs, no, deserves to be acknowledged and helped in any way they need. We do everything we can, anywhere we can, to do that. GoldStarRide.org. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Our very special guest, Richard Rothstein. Uh, the Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard, um, first understand, I, I don't have a dog in the political fight. Um, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. My mother, I grew up in a Democratic house. My mother was an ardent Democrat. But it kind of surprises me that this all started in the 30s because didn't Democrats pretty much run the country for about 20, 25 straight years there? So I'm, I'm kind of surprised. What, why did that happen, do you think? Well, this did start the New Deal. Yeah. It started the New Deal because prior to the Roosevelt's election, the federal government wasn't involved in housing. So it's not that the federal government was uh, following different policies prior to that. Mm -hmm. The first government involvement in housing came during the New Deal, during that Democratic administration, and it came on a segregated basis. And you have what? to remember that the, the Democratic Party at that time was a, an elite white Anglo-Saxon Protestant party right. um, with uh, the attitude of uh, 
superiority to all um, what they considered inferior groups. It was part of the ethos of the Democratic Party at the time. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, going back to World War I uh, uh, period. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was elected president uh, in 1912. He was the first Southerner to be elected president, segregationist to be elected president mm-hmm. since the Civil War. Proceeded to uh, uh, segregate the federal civil service, which previously had been integrated. Uh, there were many African Americans working in federal office buildings, some of them as supervisors prior to that time. Uh, under uh, the Wilson policy, starting in 1913, uh, uh, curtains were put up in federal office buildings separating black from white workers. Uh, separate washrooms were created in basements for African Americans. African Americans were fired in cases where they supervised white workers. Well, the reason I tell this story is that uh, one of the biggest federal departments at that time was the Navy Department. Mm-hmm. And the person responsible in the Navy Department for implementing this policy was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. His name was Franklin Roosevelt. Now, uh, I'm not suggesting that Franklin Roosevelt would have segregated the Navy um, on his own were it not for Wilson's leadership. But on the other hand, this was part of the environment of the Democratic Party in which he matured. And, uh, he didn't question it. He didn't challenge it. And uh, so, it's this, of course, there was a Southern Democratic influence, which were militant segregationists, but even Northerners like uh, Roosevelt accepted. African Americans flocked to the Democratic Party during this period mm-hmm. because prior to this, they got no housing at all. During the uh, New Deal, they got segregated housing. Right. And since there was a desperate house shortage, they accepted that uh, arrangement and became Democrats, largely. Uh, but uh, it was always on a segregated basis. Yeah, it's really interesting, Richard, because I don't remember, again, I grew up in the poorest neighborhood in, in Minneapolis, north side, of, north side of Minneapolis, and I don't remember any segregated housing, except I will say this, the north side from the Mississippi River to Lindale Avenue was pretty much Catholic. Lindale Avenue to Penn on Plymouth was, was African-American, and Penn West to the city limits uh, was a Jewish neighborhood. But it's not like we didn't wander in and out of each other's neighborhoods, and some people you know, lived, lived in each neighborhood, white people, black people, Jews. And we all coexisted, and I, was I just very young and very naive to not, not have seen this? Well, I don't know how old you are. <laughs> well, I would have been. We're talking about uh, in the fifties. I would have been a little ahead. boy. I would have been a little boy in the fifties. Well, you know, by that time the suburbs had been created. Yeah. Uh, and the public housing uh, was left to African Americans who were prohibited from moving to the suburbs. So by the time, by the nineteen fifties, when when we had these separate white and black projects, there were large vacancies in the white projects and long waiting lists in the black projects. And as I mentioned, the the, the projects originally were for working class families. Poor people weren't allowed into them. Right. But once uh, came all black at about the same time, uh, and you were too young, young to uh, see this yourself, but if you know your history, you'll know that at about the same time, industry left the cities. They went out to the suburbs. They no longer mm-hmm. had to be located near water ports or railroad terminals. They could be located uh, uh, near highways and could deliver their, their finished products and get their raw materials by truck. So industry left the cities. The people living in public housing, who are now increasingly African-American because the whites were being suburbanized right. by the Federal Housing Administration, became poorer and poorer. They no longer had access to decent jobs. Eventually, public housing came to be segregated as well as uh, low income and subsidized. You know, originally the, the public housing was not subsidized. People were paying the full cost of housing and their rent. Like I said, it wasn't for poor people. Once it became subsidized, uh, the government, uh, both the federal and local governments, stopped uh, investing in them, stopped maintaining them well. They deteriorated. They became the kind of uh, vertical or, or uh, uh, concentrated slums that we associate with public housing. But that's not how it began. But by the 1950s, that process was underway. It, uh, yeah. You wouldn't have seen us segregated projects for whites by then because uh, mostly uh, they were being suburbanized. Yeah, after World War II, I, that is absolutely true. I, uh, why, why was public housing then, at first it was not, you were paid full freight. Why did it become subsidized in the first place? Well, it became subsidized because the industry left the cities and there was no more jobs for the people who were living there. 
because the whites were subsidized by the federal government with the FHA and VA to move into single-family homes in all white suburbs. Right. A white family, a white friend who returned from World War II, who was living in public housing, in a white project of public housing, could move with a VA mortgage into a single-family home in an all-white suburb and pay less than his monthly housing costs than he had been paying for rent in public housing. Uh, well, the industry left too, left too, and, and those white workers were able to get jobs in the new suburban areas where they were living. African Americans were prohibited from participating in this program. They wound up staying in cities, uh, in public housing as well as in, in the rental market, and they could no longer afford to um, pay the rent in, in public housing because there were no more jobs available. So the government had to start subsidizing it. How did they not see that coming? And how did industry? How, well, I'll just take Minneapolis again. Why did Minneapolis ever allow its industry to move out? I, all that tax money just kind of went away, and I, they couldn't stop that. I mean, they couldn't. Uh, the only way you're going to stop that is to make conditions better for businesses in the city. Uh, why didn't they just do that? Well, you know, industry um, typically wanted to um, more land. You know, when they, they, it was inefficient to. Um, have a, a plant on a river uh, because it had to be multi-story. Uh, oh, yeah. In my book, I tell us a Ford Motor plant in um, Richmond, California, which was located um, on the bay, could get its all, all its raw materials and ship its projects um, by ship. Um, it had multi-story. Uh, you know, it wasn't a continuous assembly line. The parts had to be lifted up and down uh, among the stories of the plant. Well, once a uh, uh, and this was a plant in, in uh, Richmond, California, that was uh, about 25% black. The workers were about 25% black. Once the highway started to be built, the, the plant closed and moved to the suburbs. And the union, the auto workers union, uh, negotiated the deal with Ford that permitted all the workers there to uh, keep their jobs by moving to the suburbs. The problem was that the white workers could move, the black workers couldn't because the, there were no suburbs being built for blacks. They were all for whites exclusively. And so whites were able to move to the urban areas. African-Americans mostly had to remain uh, while their jobs left. There were a few. I, I write about in the book one, uh, one guy who was very motivated and industrious, and he bought a van and recruited six or seven other guys to drive with him a 50-mile round trip every way to the new suburban location of the plant. Mm -hmm. But mostly the workers couldn't transfer. And so they became poorer and uh, the white workers were able to transfer and keep their good industrial jobs. Why, Richard, as late as the 1950s and, you know, certain things continue on, but what was the problem, the excuse they made for, well, we can't allow black people, based on, based on what thought? What was wrong in their minds with black people? Well, this is all a legacy of slavery. You know, yeah, we never it really is. Yeah, I slavery. yeah, I understand that. You know, immediately after the Civil War, the Congress passed a law uh, under the 13th Amendment, under the provisions of the 13th Amendment, prohibiting housing discrimination of any kind, um, under the grounds that the, you couldn't um, emancipate slaves and make them second-class citizens. They, and and the, the characteristic of first-class citizenship is the ability to buy and sell property. Uh, Congress passed a law prohibiting discrimination. The Supreme Court... Uh, overturned that law, and it wasn't until 1968 that the Supreme Court, you know, said, "Whoops, we were wrong. Uh, that was a good law. That's what the 13th Amendment required. We should have allowed African Americans to purchase property." But you know, by then the the, the patterns of segregation in every city in the country had been set. Yeah, that makes complete sense and, to me. And on top of that, you had like just to even rent an apartment in Minneapolis, you have to have a really good credit score. Yeah, and. Unfortunately, most of the black community don't, so does not have a good credit score, mm -hmm. so they can't rent an apartment there in, in the nicer areas. So they have to go places where you don't have to have a credit score, and they're better, they're worse neighborhoods. So that all feeds into it. Now, what's interesting, Richard, looking back in, in the late '50s and early '60s, because I did grow up, I went to a Catholic school called St. Joseph's. And there were black students, there were Spanish students, there were Native American students, there were you know, all kinds of people. A lot of, as you said, Italians, Irish, French, German, you know, all the Catholic people, all the rest of it. And we all got along famously in a wonderful time. Then I started to meet people 
you know, by the time I was uh, 13 years old, something like that. And I would go to their houses, and their parents would find out I was from North Minneapolis and ask their sons not to hang out with me anymore. I'm 100%. Look, I'm, I'm a white guy. I'm a white Roman Catholic. It wasn't because I was Roman Catholic. It's because of where I lived. They and didn't that, want me and around. And that's still the case today. I think it is North still the case today. That's 100%. exactly right. It's, it's, it was rather scary back then, Richard, I'll tell you that. It was, it's like, what's wrong with me? I, I, I'm from the wrong neighborhood, But really? it's still that way in Minneapolis. It if you is, say you're from you know, North Minneapolis, people look the other way. They do. Richard, it's unbelievable. But I think we need... You know, like I, it, Go ahead. I know it was scary, and um, it's uh, important that you tell that story. But just imagine how much scarier it is for people who experience this every minute of their lives. Sure. Who are followed by police drive into the wrong neighborhood or, or park in the wrong place or, or walk into a Starbucks store and sit down like everybody does. Uh, how much scarier is that? No, you're right. You're absolutely you know, right about scares, that. Serious experience to, in that period. I don't, know, I don't know if you know much about the city of Minneapolis, Richard, but Minneapolis is actually ranked dead last for integration in America. We ha- And they base that on home ownership, jobs, uh, multiple different factors, and we rank dead last for integration for our black community. And for some reason, the city of Minneapolis continues to push our black population down in this city and, do, and just won't let them get up on their feet. And it just never stops. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. Well, I'm sure you're right, but I'll, let me tell you something. I travel around the country talking about the and there isn't a city I go to that people don't tell me that their place is worse than every place else. <laughs> and in some respects, it is. Yeah. Well, we just got ranked, we got ranked by multiple different publications just recently. Uh, the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal just ranked us dead last. The New York Times just ranked us dead last. You know, we're we're a Fortune 500 company city. We have 19 Fortune 500 companies based in downtown Minneapolis in the city. So you have to have multiple college degrees to get a job there. So if you don't have two college degrees, you're not getting a job there. We have a 51% high school dropout rate in our black community in the city of Minneapolis. That's a fact, 51% high school dropout rate. So there's half that's not getting a job at these Fortune 500 companies. So it's, it's a very segregated city. It is yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Richard Rossi. It's a great, great book. Thank you for your time today, sir. I learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, sir. Richard Rossi. Yeah, it, it's... Um, Interesting book. I like to read it. Yeah, it is. It's a really good book. But you look back, and again, I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. But why did all this happen under Democrats? Uh, slavery. They, those, those people were all Democrats, well, the they, slave owners. I, I just saw recently that what you were talking about, they built neighborhoods and built the freeway around. They were, oh, called, yeah. they were called red zones. Red zones, and they, yeah, that's they, right. But they actually found all the original plans and the, and the notes. Like They did it on purpose. Oh, and there's they were, no doubt. And they In were Chicago, called, that's they were, why the S-curve is Yeah, there, they were called red zones, and they placed people in these zones so they were yep. trapped. Well, I, I mean, probably the number one person that headed up community organization is Saul Alinsky. And if you ever look at Saul Alinsky's theories, that's exactly what he, you know, promoted with Mm -hmm. his um, socialism is to segregate communities in order to gain power and control over them. And I think think the city of Minneapolis is still doing that. Yeah. I mean, and and that follows, uh, you know, the far left, you know, radical side. Yeah. I mean, it's, some of the stuff I've heard him say is horrifying. Like, oh my gosh! And these people were so blinded by it, and um, that's why I, I was so shocked about um, people putting their full force against uh, behind Hillary Clinton because she was a student his yeah. of his. Yeah. It's so. true. We'll be right back. Just a couple of minutes. Tom Bernard Show. <laughs> 